Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Now we often talk about markets on this podcast, but it's coming up to that time of year when we start thinking about not that exciting pre-tax return, but the real and far more important after-tax return that you receive on your portfolio, but on your broader income. So today I'm joined by Chris Balalovsky from BDO, who's a tax partner in business services. He specializes in a range of tax issues and he can take us through some of the more complex issues and also just all the things you need to be thinking about at this time of year. Now, as always, you need to speak to a professional. If you need personal tax advice, don't uh, don't rush out and act on this if you're not sure if it applies to you. But uh, we'll do our best to cover the critical things to think about. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, thank you very much for the opportunity. So, Chris, We're going to cover investors, we're going to cover individuals who are salary owners, and we're also going to cover businesses because that's your area of specialty and we have many business owners who listen. But let's start with investors. As we approach the end of the financial year, what are the critical things they could and should be thinking about? Uh, Gemma, it's interesting that you um, uh, prefaced our discussion with taxation considerations and post-tax returns uh, that an investor or um, a business owner, business proprietor might be interested in. And I can understand that. Absolutely, tax is a fact of life in our society, and it is a relevant issue to consider at this time of year. It seems to uh, drive a lot of the thinking at this time of year, because in Australia, we have uh, a financial year that ends on the 30th of June, obviously. And sometimes, unfortunately, the thinking can be clustered around this time of year, Uh, The tax thinking can be clustered around this time of year. I would prefer that we're thinking about tax uh, fairly evenly throughout the course of a financial year and not making any last-minute considerations or scrambling to put together arrangements, including potentially legal documents that may be necessary. I would prefer that end-of-year considerations are more broader than just tax as well. So for investors, it might be just an ordinary portfolio review to determine whether or not it's still fit for purpose. Does it meet our financial needs and objectives in the short, medium and long term? Do the equities that we hold in our portfolio um, still have, do we still have conviction in them? Are they the right equities for us for terms of dividend income and capital returns? But if we're talking about taxation today, if we're focusing on taxation, then irrespective of the asset class that the investor may be invested in, so whether that's equities, cash, bonds, uh, real property, motor vehicle, classic motor vehicles, anything whatsoever, then the usual end of financial year tax considerations, uh, the things that you probably see in advertisements on TV and in the press, deferring the derivation of income is the first obvious thing to think of. That doesn't mean that we wipe out any tax liabilities or necessarily reduce them. It just means that we're deferring the tax liability on that income until a subsequent financial year. We've therefore got the use of that tax that we would otherwise pay for other purposes, investment, business, or even personal, and we've merely deferred it. It's not necessarily a tax reduction strategy by deferring income to the next financial year. And there are multiple ways of doing that. 
uh, all within the bounds of the law. The other part of the equation obviously then is accelerating certain types of outgoings and expenditures. If we bring those expenditures forward into this financial year and incur them on or before the 30th of June, and this is where the mad rush is and where you see most of the advertisements on in the press and on TV, uh, it, we may be entitled to a deduction for that expenditure. If we're entitled to a deduction, it therefore uh, has the usual effect of reducing our tax liability this financial year, creating uh, not necessarily a tax difference for us, it's timing. We're just bringing forward that deduction into this year. We would forego it next year, but we have the advantage, uh, the time cost of money, we have the advantage of a lesser tax bill this year. Deductions should usually be considered more broadly, ensuring that you know uh, what types of deductions are available to you as an investor, and they will typically be cost of advice. They will also frequently incur interest on geared portfolios. And interestingly, uh, interest expenses may be able to be prepaid. Next year's interest may be able to be prepaid. And we get uh, the juicy deduction this financial year, helping us with cash flow when we lodge our return for this financial year. Although remember that it is kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. You miss out on that deduction next year. You've already obtained it unless you then, of course, prepay the following year and so on. At the end of the financial year as well, Gemma, it may be um, relevant because I know a lot of the investors who are listening are SMSF investors or members of self-managed super funds. And the usual things that apply there, such as ensuring that minimum pension payments are made by the end of the financial year, uh, optimizing contributions to super for any type of investor, not just SMSF optimizing contributions to super if we believe that that's where we want our money to be in the superannuation environment and potentially obtaining deductions for those contributions. One thing that seems to preoccupy a lot of investors at this time of year is crystallizing losses. And losses can be within those category of expenses that we're looking for that means that we have a reduction in our taxable income, a reduction, therefore, in our tax bill. Losses can be a very, very powerful uh, mechanism for achieving that, although it's unfortunate from an economic perspective that we have losses in our portfolio. We'd all rather have gains than losses. We shouldn't ignore the tax impact of the crystallization of a loss. It will usually have the effect of reducing our tax bill, and so it can be uh, something that preoccupies individuals, sometimes dangerously, uh, toward 30th of June with the crystallization of losses. That's such a fabulous summary. And we'll cover some of those things in more detail, particularly super contributions, because they're mm-hmm. one where there's so much detail and so much to be across. And it's changed a great deal in the time that I've been working in this area. But let's start with, you've talked about deductions in particular and crystallizing losses and so on. Absolutely the things that are front of mind for investors and anyone who might be able to take advantage of them. Absolutely critical to stay on the right side of the tax office, right? So the worst possible outcome is you go and claim something you're not entitled to and then you have the expense 
and the anxiety and potentially the penalty of getting it wrong. So what do we need to do to make sure when we're looking at some of these opportunities that we are not doing anything dodgy, we're staying on the right side of the tax officer's view and of the law? And uh, absolutely, that's what we should be ensuring that we're doing, uh, even though the tax office is generally a very cooperative organisation and will work with our taxpayers to ensure that their tax affairs are in order. And if mistakes are made, that they can generally be corrected without penalty or or uh, other repercussions. It's important that you don't uh, go down that path either deliberately or even inadvertently. You get the best advice possible and you will generally stay out of trouble if you remember that taxpayers are entitled to structure their affairs in order to incur the least tax liability. Perfectly legitimate to do so, to structure your affairs to achieve a beneficial tax outcome. It only becomes problematic when the tax outcome is our sole or dominant motive for entering into an arrangement or structure, our sole or dominant motive. In other words, if we've got a tax benefit that results from a particular strategy that has some other dominant purpose, for example, a commercial purpose, a personal purpose, it might be for asset protection, for example, then we're going to be okay with the tax office with the resulting tax benefit. In the end of financial year context, as I mentioned a moment ago, perhaps the greatest area of risk is with regard to the crystallization of losses and people reviewing their portfolios for the purpose of crystallizing, creating a loss that will reduce their taxable income. It will reduce their ultimate tax liability. Now, crystallizing a loss might occur in very, very uncontroversial circumstances, circumstances beyond your control. Let's say you're a shareholder in a company X and it goes into liquidation and liquidator declares that the shareholding is worthless. Or if that company uh, announces that it's buying back shares, uh, non-renounceable buyback of shares, nothing you can do about it. The liquidator has liquidated the company, declared your shares worthless, you've crystallized a loss. Uncontroversial, the tax office cannot dispute that loss, nor with a company compulsorily buying back its shares in certain circumstances. And if that results in a loss, then there's nothing that the Commissioner of Taxation can do about that. So your disposals, though, might occur as part of a standard portfolio review with your advisor and you work through the portfolio and you have a look at what's above water and what's underwater. And you realize that if you were to dispose of those of your holdings which were underwater, you'd crystallize a loss, either a capital loss or a revenue loss. And that might be more controversial. And this is where the tax office is focusing on what's known as a wash sale. Essentially, that's an arrangement uh, which is designed to artificially increase our losses or reduce our gains from our portfolios and is a form of tax avoidance, which is a problem area, which can result in penalties. A wash sale will typically involve the disposal of assets just before the end of financial year. A short period after that, maybe still within the same financial year, but uh, maybe uh, just on or after 1 July, the reacquisition of the same or substantially similar assets occurs. The result you can see is a disposal of assets, crystallizing a loss, and an acquisition of potentially the very same asset. And our purpose 
absent any other explaining factors, is to obtain that tax benefit of the loss that we can claim this financial year. Nevertheless, we've still remained uh, an owner of the same asset, still economically exposed in the same way. It's understood that this can occur, uh, an acquisition and a sale, in perfectly legitimate circumstances. So merely clearing out uh, your loss shareholdings shouldn't be a problem. And importantly, uh, tax officers recognised that when you're doing that exercise, you can even select the parcel or tranche of shares that you're disposing. So if you'd acquired several tranches at different price points over an extended period, and you're clearing out your portfolio for 30th of June, you're able to select which ones are now being disposed of. And that might have a tax benefit uh, because if you if you pick the ones that are in lost territory, that's still going to be okay with the tax office. Again, provided that there's no reacquisition of the same or substantially the same asset within a reasonably proximate period without some other explanation. So I've unfortunately seen um, scenario where the owner of an asset, uh, a particular uh, equity in their portfolio, merely transfers it to a company or trust that they control or from which they might benefit. They might be a shareholder or a beneficiary of the trust, shareholder of the company, beneficiary of the trust. And in those circumstances, uh, and it's un- an underwater um, stock, They've crystallized a loss in their own name. They claim that loss in their personal income tax return, reduce their tax liability, but still either themselves directly or maybe broadly in their family group, they've got the same economic exposure. And unless that can be explained by some other reasons, perhaps asset protection. Disposing of the asset to a trust usually means that that asset is protected from the creditors of the original owner. And the Commissioner of Taxation might be able to strike that down and say, I'm denying that loss that was claimed because you still have the same economic exposure to the asset. You reacquired it almost at the same time uh, at the same price. So it's definitely one of the most problematic areas, Gemma, with regard to planning the tax at the end of financial year and staying on the right side of the tax office. When we're talking about investors, it's portfolio reviews that might trip us into wash sale territory. That's such a fabulous and thorough explanation of how you can find yourself in a bit of trouble. And to be frank, people with a sort of rough understanding of how the tax system works could be entirely excused for going, oh, awesome, I'll just sell my stuff that's at a loss and then I'll buy it back again because <laughs> yep. now I've sorted out my tax position. You're like, sure, but the ATO does not like that. Uh, yep. And they put out a ruling uh, to say exactly that. One thing I'll put to you because a lot of our investors – have preferred stock. So let's say I love my CSL. I bought it at $300. It's now $250. That's not accurate. But let's say that's my situation. And I decide, you know what, now's the time. I'm just going to clear it out. It's not coming back from $250. I'm going to sell it down. And then two days later, it falls to $200. And you go, God, that's good value. I really like CSL at $200. If I buy it back, Am I at risk or is that more of a legitimate scenario? So it's a good example. And indeed, the tax office in in that ruling that you've described gives some examples. And although what you've described isn't exactly the circumstance and the tax office is saying we're okay, it's pretty close in that 
there are circumstances beyond the taxpayer's control. Market forces have changed or market circumstances have changed due to market forces, not us manipulating in any way. And if it plays out in the way that you've described and you still have a belief that at $200 CSL is good value and it'll get you uh, some sort of a gain and you've got some sort of evidence to support that, perhaps a, uh, an analyst's report, then something akin to what you've described should not be deemed to be a wash sale and wouldn't be problematic. Oh, that point about analyst reports and things could be really useful because, you know, most of our investors do have access to a lot of research and so that can be quite helpful. Uh, and I will just say CSL shares are not currently 250 or 200. <laughs> so it was a bad example on my part. But um, perhaps it could happen. You never know. Maybe the 250, probably not the 200. Yeah. Uh, but it's good to know because a lot of our guys, you know, they – they closely watch the shares that they're passionate about and they like them at some prices and not at others. And so you do see this relatively active turning over, not necessarily of the whole portfolio, but just trimming when it gets a bit expensive and picking it up when it gets a bit cheaper. And yep. the timing of that is always interesting, particularly as it comes close yep. to 30 June. Uh, so critical to cover off wash sales and crystallising losses you may have a view on this as a professional. Do you find that if people come to see a professional first, they're a little bit safer? Uh, look, definitely the case. And although it must be remembered that the operation of tax laws in Australia today means that the liability and responsibility for what goes into the tax return is always that of the taxpayer. And you can't merely um, make a statement and say, look, um, I relied on my advisor uh, they misled me and that's why I got it wrong and therefore I'm not liable for the additional tax or I should be entitled to the deduction. It doesn't work that way. You are opening yourself up, at least for the primary tax liability, you can't escape that, but opening yourself up for potential penalties and interest, notwithstanding that you've engaged a professional. The good news is that the tax office have guidelines for the remission of penalties and interest. And where an individual or uh, any taxpayer at all has engaged a professional and has relied on that advice, then they're usually going to be able to demonstrate that they took reasonable care. And in those circumstances, the penalty and interest may be reduced by a certain percentage, maybe even to nil, depending on the circumstances. So it is worthwhile to get the professional advice. Uh, number one, you just don't want to have the dealings with the tax office and uh, the the pain uh, that that can be from a time perspective and a cost perspective, but then also having a degree of certainty that in the event that something is incorrect, you'll generally have a, a position that you can argue with the commissioner for the reduction of any corresponding penalties and interests. The tax will still be payable, but penalties and interest may be reduced. Yeah, that's helpful to know. And I will say, having spent a little period of my career reading tax rulings and so on, and also a lot of the case law, like you're allowed to disagree with the tax office's view of the law. The tax office is not the law per se. Their job is to interpret it and apply it. But then you have to go to court and having court rulings and so on, any person bold enough to take on the tax office is just bolder and has deeper pockets than I do. I'm yeah. going to put it that way. <laughs> So let's talk about many of our investors, not true of all, as you've mentioned, uh, self-managed super fund trustees, particularly those in pension phase, and they've got a completely different set of issues to deal with. But let's say most of my 
income comes from salary. So if you're a pensioner with an SMSF, then you almost definitely don't have to worry too much about tax, just making sure it's zero. That's your job. Uh, but it, let's say my income comes from a salary and therefore the tax rates apply to me in the purest sense, right? The, there's a limited range of deductions. You have a structured set of circumstances you can work within. You have much less flexibility than a business owner and a much higher rate of tax than a retiree. What should I be thinking about? So if I'm a salary earner, I don't have any complex circumstances, what can I do? Unfortunately, Gemma, your uh, options when compared to non-salary type income are extremely limited, if not non-existent. And I'll dwell on one in particular, and that's the options for deferral or alienation of income. Someone who's deriving passive investment income, for example, rent or dividend income or interest. Passive investment income has the ability to divert that income away from themselves. In other words, that it's derived instead by some other person or entity or vehicle in the family group. Uh, some other person, obvious, or some other entity or vehicle, such as a company or a trust. Now, of course, that company or trust has to be in existence before the income is derived. And with the 30th of June rapidly approaching, and uh, if dividends or or interest income has not yet been paid and you, you're running out of time for 30th of June, it might be a, a strategy for next financial year. But with salary and wage earners, it is generally impossible to defer, or, sorry, and to alienate, or to defer and to alienate income to some other person or some other entity or, or vehicle. So the only real consideration for salary and wage earners is really with respect respect to deductions, reducing taxable income and therefore your tax payable by incurring expenses. The basic rule here is that any expense which is incurred in gaining or producing that salary is deductible. There has to be a connection with gaining or producing that salary. It's not any expense that we might incur. Now, although there are many industry-specific considerations depending on the industry in which we're employed, the broad categories of deductions that are going to be relevant to most individuals who are earning salary and wage income are motor vehicle expenses, travel expenses, accommodation, clothing, education, such as self-education, home office expenses, very relevant with a lot of people working from home at present. And let's not forget contributions to superannuation, which can be deductible in certain circumstances. Let's not get too excited, though, by uh, those categories because there are very, very strict evidentiary requirements that uh, the taxpayer will have to meet in order to be entitled to those deductions. I have a lot of individuals or you know, in passive conversations, barbecues and the like, and people say, but uh, I'm just entitled to a deduction each year for $300. I'm just entitled and there's a common belief that you're just entitled to that deduction, irrespective of whether or not you've even incurred the expense, just a blanket $300 that everyone is entitled to. It's not the case at all. That reference to $300 is generally with respect to the evidentiary requirements, and those strict requirements don't apply to expenditure that is less than $300, although the Commissioner of Taxation is perfectly entitled to still ask for some evidence, just not the strict requirements that apply to those expenses that exceed $300. What are some of those evidentiary requirements? Uh, Logbooks, for example, receipts, invoices, 
diary entries and such that can be quite onerous. You'll need to think about producing that material, retaining that material well before you claim the deduction. And that can sometimes mean uh, quite a bit of a task, sitting down and diarising uh, your computer usage, your usage of the um, a room in your home as a home office at the time that you've spent in the home office, your usage of a uh, motor vehicle. Now, importantly here, Gemma, deductions aren't available in respect of any expenses which might be private or domestic in nature. And again, it's sometimes comical uh, what you might read that comes out of the decisions of the courts and tribunals with uh, what certain uh, taxpayers are claiming as deductions and why they even bother to um, argue the point in the courts and tribunals when the law seems to be very well settled with regard to what is private or domestic in nature. But some of the uh, greyer areas and blurry areas where it's difficult sometimes to grasp, am I entitled or not, would be conventional clothing. The clothing that we wear every day uh, when we're going to uh, visit someone, going to the shops and going about our daily business is generally not deductible. Conventional clothing. Travel to and from the usual place of work is generally not deductible as well. It's uh, travel to places that are not the usual place of work or between places of work, which are deductible. Rent and mortgage expenses are frequently viewed as being deductible or should be deductible, uh, sometimes perhaps because people are thinking about other parts of the world where such expenses may be deductible, the United States, for example. So we've got to be very careful when considering uh, what we are putting forward as a deduction item if self-preparing, uh, be very, very aware of the risks of claiming absolutely everything that we think is even remotely connected to our uh, the derivation of our salary and wage income. Yeah, it's such a good one. And I will say the tax office has actually done a pretty good job of putting up a lot of statements about different occupations. So if you think about your occupation, you can probably go on the tax office and find it's not a flyer anymore, like a webpage that is dedicated to your occupation and what you're likely to be able to claim. And I'll give a hilarious example, but I used to do, I still do um, a few television appearances as part of this job. And at one point I was uh, hosting a commercial television program and they required particular types of clothing and a lot of makeup that I wouldn't wear under normal circumstances and I asked if it was deductible because it was costing a fortune, right? And uh, and they were like, well, unless my, my tax advisor was like, look, unless you can prove that it's television specific makeup, no, you can't. And I was like, oh, yep. I give up. I don't know what television specific <laughs> makeup is. It just yep. feels like a lot. That's what it felt like. It's one of the more unusual ones. So you've mentioned contributing to super quite a few times. And this is where... The rules have changed a lot and if you haven't kept up to date with the changes, and admittedly I feel like maybe I've been doing this such a long time, some people will never have known the earlier rules anyway, but salary and wage earners now have much more flexibility with using deductions for super and that is cool because it used not to be that way. So can you talk that through for us? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It should be a, um, a legitimate consideration for anyone who has multiple purposes. Yes, indeed, uh, obtaining a deduction and thereby reducing your overall tax bill, Gemma, but then also saving for retirement in a tax-efficient way. 
And that's the purpose of superannuation, uh, is that it's meant to provide for death, disability, retirement uh, of individuals. And if that's your primary motive, then we shouldn't have any problem with making superannuation contributions and obtaining a deduction. Indeed, it's encoded in the tax law that deductions are available for certain types of superannuation contributions. It can be very, very tax effective, and that's that's the good news. The deduction is available, Gemma, in the same way as it is for other types of expenditures or outgoings that I've mentioned. So imagine that you spent uh, $1,000 on a motor vehicle expenditure. That $1,000 deduction is uh, just a, a straight line reduction of your taxable income, uh, $1,000. A contribution to super, imagine it's $1,000, and it, if it is deductible, it reduces our taxable income in exactly the same way, dollar for dollar, straight line, uh, $1,000. We then pay tax on our resulting net income, our, our, our bottom line taxable income position. That deduction may be available where personal contributions are made to superannuation. There is a limit. I'll talk about uh, the limit on that deduction in a moment, but a personal contribution made by an individual for themselves. Alternatively, individuals might speak to their employer and their employer might permit the individual to salary sacrifice a portion of their regular pay and have it contributed to superannuation, uh, a fund of their choice. That means that that amount won't be taxed in the individual's hands. And so we do have a tax saving, a commensurate tax saving, $1,000 is just not taxed in our hands, whatever the contribution may be. Although that sounds attractive, you have to note that these types of contributions, which are either a deduction will be obtained, sought and obtained, or which are being contributed pre-tax because they're salary sacrifice, will be taxed in the receiving superannuation fund. And it'll be taxed, they'll be taxed at a rate of 15%. And that tax will usually be debited from the individual's balance. So you get an 85 cents in the dollar increase in your superannuation balance with a $1 contribution into super of, of this type. There's a 15% tax on the way in. For most individuals, that is tax beneficial. Because most of us who are engaged in salary and wage uh, activities are going to be paying a tax rate that's in excess of 15 cents in the dollar, even on uh, average rates of pay in Australia today. You've got to be mindful as well, though, that these types of contributions might be subject to tax when they eventually leave the super system. For example, on the death of the member of the super fund for whom the contributions were made and taxed at 15% on the way in then there could be a tax on the way out of death benefit, depending on who it's paid to. And that can be a rate of at least 17%. There may be zero tax, depending on circumstances. But if there is, it's going to be at least 17%. Could be as high as 32, uh, but at least 17%. Of course, you need to be mindful of the fact that any contribution to super is going to be locked in the super system until a condition of release is satisfied, usually death, disability, retirement, uh, satisfying age conditions. And if you're okay with that, then you know that your money is in a concessionally taxed environment. Because it is a concessionally taxed environment, then there's a, um, uh, the, other, the other part of the equation is that there are limitations I mentioned on the amounts that might be contributed. At present, the pre-tax amount 
that may be contributed, i.e. the amount for which we may seek and obtain a deduction personally, or which may be salary sacrificed in total, and this includes our super guarantee amounts, the amounts that our employer is statutorily required to contribute, is capped at $27,500 per annum per person, $27,500. And that won't be increased on the 1st of July this year. It's staying at $27,500 for next financial year. The post-tax amount, i.e., we've already paid tax on it at our prevailing rate, whatever that is, and it's in our bank account, and we decide to contribute that to super, that won't be taxed on the way in to super. Zero tax. So it's great that we can get it into that concessionally taxed environment. But remember, we've already paid tax on it. It won't be taxed on the way out as well. Makes sense. But there's a cap on that as well. And that is currently $110,000 per individual per annum. That may or may not increase on the 1st of July, depending on how some of the uh, figures are worked out with regard to inflation rates and the like. The good news is, though, that notwithstanding those caps, there are various ways in which individuals can either catch up on missed years of contributions with the pre-tax amounts. So if we've missed for whatever reason, uh, we can catch them up and make significant contributions this year and get a deduction for those additional contributions. Or we can uh, make prepayments of future years in respect of our post-tax contributions. But remember, it's kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul. If you make prepayments of those future years, then you're going to be limited and uh, in, in those future years uh, to be able to make those contributions, which may have been more expedient for you for all sorts of reasons. That's such a great summary. And there's so much to consider with superannuation. But I will always remind people, because we do get this comment about, you know, it's taxed on the way in, it's taxed while it's in there, it's taxed on its way out. I'm like, pretty much everything is like that, right? <laughs> Your salary is taxed on the way through. When you invest in stuff, you pay tax on the income and you pay tax on the capital gains. And then when you sell it, you pay tax on the capital gains overall. You know, there are very few things where there's no tax on the way in during and after. That's roughly how the tax system works. And the advantage of super is once you get to retirement, that tax-free income stream is unbelievable. That... Mm tax-free earnings in pension phase up to a limit, as we say, and tax-free withdrawals over 60 is pretty hard to beat. So you've got to keep all of these other considerations in mind. And the biggest issue for many young people is it's locked up for so long. That's the biggest problem. Uh, but it's locked up for so long because it's there for your retirement. And if it was not there for your retirement, it's not super, is it? So uh, it's yeah. uh, it's a complex system. But I tell you what, the uh, the tax concessions as they currently stand are still incredibly generous. So let's get into business owners because I think there's such a meaningful cohort of people who have a lot of tax planning opportunities available to them. They've got very busy lives. If you're running a business tax is usually an obligation and not something you're giving a great deal of thought to all the way through the year. You're worried about your cash flow and your employees and your clients and all the other things, mm -hmm. but so much to consider. So talk us through it. What should business clients be thinking about at this time of year? Surprisingly, the starting position with business uh, operators is very similar to the basic rule that we just talked about with salary and wage type individuals. That is, 
uh, they'll be entitled to deductions for any expense or an outgoing which was incurred in gaining or producing the business income. And so the same connection needs to be sought and made with regard to whatever our expenditure item is. Be careful again with uh, income that, oh, sorry, expenses which may be of a private or domestic nature. The area that's often a trip up there is motor vehicle expenses and making sure that if we are using a motor vehicle in our business, that we carefully only claim that proportion which is directly related to the business activities rather than uh, going shopping for our weekly groceries or picking up children from school and the like. But the basic rule is very, very similar. Uh, incurred in gaining or producing our business income. Another significant or a significant area of difference is that business income can generally be alienated. And that means that it can be diverted to other individuals or uh, entities and vehicles in our family group and taxed to them or it rather than to ourselves. Of course, to do that, that vehicle, that entity or that person must be in existence uh, when that income is derived. And again, with 30 June rapidly approaching, it may be too late to structure our affairs such that our business income is derived in some other vehicle or entity um, for this entire financial year. In fact, it would be essentially impossible. It might be a next financial year planning point if it's not already in existence. But business income can legitimately be diverted in this way, provided that it's not what's known as personal services income, which will always be accessible to the individual who's providing those personal services. But if it's genuine business income that satisfies certain criteria, then it can be derived by any vehicle or entity and then split amongst those beneficiaries of that vehicle or entity and taxed at their personal rates. That can be very tax effective. Another significant area of difference, Gemma, is the ability for businesses to carry losses back for two years and obtain uh, a refundable tax offset. It used to be the law, and we've talked a little bit about losses and the ability to crystallize losses this year, have them apply to any income that we generate this year. And if there's an excess of losses, we can carry those forward indefinitely. Uh, it used to be a capped period, but it's now indefinitely able to be carried forward. Uh, very useful. The law was changed a couple of years ago to allow us to even carry losses back for two years. So if a business, and, and this is in business uh, circumstances, if a business generates a loss this year, crystallizes a loss from its operating activities, and we had gains last year, and we paid tax on those gains last year, we're able to apply those losses either prospectively to future years or our election to last year and reduce our tax liability essentially for last year by getting a credit in this year's tax return. So it can be very, very useful for business owners, and this is restricted to uh, business income only. So all those opportunities are really powerful for business, and if you are not already well-structured to take advantage of this stuff, it's so beneficial to go and see someone who can help you put the right strategies in place. And as you say, you can't do it on the end 
on the third third week of May or the second week of June. That's not the time. If you can start a little bit earlier in the financial year, that is best. You have mentioned also in a video we did recently that there are some, in fact, finite opportunities for business owners this year. Talk us through those. Perhaps the most important, and we mentioned deductions uh, in the ordinary course should be considered by business owners. One of the most uh, significant areas of or significant type of deduction that's available to business is with respect to depreciation on capital items. I mentioned that uh, deductions of private or capital nature are usually not deductible. If there is something of a capital nature, for example, plant, equipment, and machinery that's acquired for business purposes, uh, the, the basic rule is that that is to be depreciated over the effective life of that asset, which means that we get a deduction written off over uh, a period which may be as short as four years, maybe longer but it's extended over a period. So we ultimately get the benefit, but not upfront. The instant asset write-off or temporary full expensing measures, however, have been in place for many years. And what they allow us to do, allow a business to do, is to write off the full amount that's spent on a business asset, a capital asset, in the financial year in which it was acquired and installed ready for use. Acquired and installed ready for use. And it gives us a tax deduction for the full cost of the asset immediately, as opposed to depreciating it over an extended period in dribs and drabs. The full cost is deductible, which may even create a loss um, scenario. Very importantly, and I think that it's what you're getting at when you ask about finite opportunities, Gemma, is that there's currently no limit on the amount that can be claimed as an immediate deduction for most items under the uh, temporary full expensing measure. No limit. There used to be, but not currently for the 2023 financial year ending on the 30th of June. So irrespective of the amount spent, and if you, uh, if it's a qualifying type of asset, if you're a qualifying type of taxpayer, which is going to be most medium, small, and even some larger businesses, then we'll get a full deduction this financial year for most types of assets. And that's going to include uh, used assets that we acquire don't have to be brand new, and even the cost of refurbishing some existing assets that we we already own and hold. And the types of assets here, uh, the typical things that you might imagine, plant equipment machinery that I've mentioned, tools, fixtures and fittings, computers, furniture, and motor vehicles. Although with motor vehicles, there is a cap on the amount that can be claimed. It's not unlimited as it is for other asset types. Motor vehicles are limited. The finite element of this is, as, as indicated, the asset needs to be acquired, delivered, and installed on our premises by 30th of June 2023. It looks as though the scheme is going to be extended next financial year. So if we miss having it installed by the 30th of June, we are probably still going to have the ability to write off um, a lump sum rather than depreciate next financial year, but it'd be deferred to next financial year, giving us a timing difference. But at this point, it looks like it'll be capped at $20,000 per asset, not an unlimited amount. The rest of it can then be depreciated in various other ways, but not a write-off for an uncapped amount. That hasn't become law yet. So we don't know exactly what will the regime will look like, the scheme will look like next financial year. And it may be very, very advantageous 
to accelerate that expenditure into this financial year and have plant equipment machinery delivered and installed by 30th of June for an unlimited immediate deduction. That's such a big one, but I'm trying to think of how many things that are worth more than $20,000 you can order and get installed within the space of about two weeks. But, you know, worth a try. If that's your situation, worth a try. Yep. Chris, you've covered such a range of topics and there's so much to think about, but it's fabulous to get people looking clearly at this at any time and now is always a great time. If someone would like to learn more about tax planning, get an idea of how to do it well, stay on the right side of the tax office, where do you suggest that they go? Uh, Look, a very good starting point is the tax office website itself. And you mentioned some of the materials that are there uh, with regard to industry-specific deductions uh, that would be available or not available. Uh, Fantastic material. Tax office spends a lot of money in uh, taxpayer education. Some of that material is audiovisual. Some of that material is is, um, uh, text-based only. Of course, there are many other uh, taxpayer-type associations and organisations and groups that individuals can join and learn in a mutual context. But there's uh, almost no substitute for engaging a properly qualified and registered organisation or individual who's able to provide specific advice in this area. And that'll typically be an accountant, lawyer, tax agent, or financial advisor. And I must say, it's going to be more likely for the things that we've been discussing, a tax agent or an accountant. (laughs) Financial advisors can give you a lot of advice, but they will say quite openly, I'm not a tax advisor. So make sure you go and check with your tax advisor at the end. Uh, And I'm sure solicitors say exactly the same thing. That's right. Chris Balilovsky from BDO. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening also. We hope you got heaps out of this one today. It's such a huge, meaty, complex topic, but I think Chris has done an extraordinary job of giving you um, a broad range of things to think about and quite a bit of detail as well. We love hearing from you. We love getting your feedback and the things you'd like us to cover off. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.